Hello and welcome to the Cold Chain Podcast. My name's Shane Brennan and I'm a Chief Executive of the UK Cold Chain Federation. Apologies listeners, it's been a while since we had last uh, released any content on this podcast platform. It's been a busy summer, uh, lots and lots of stress in the industry, lots of things going on, but I'm delighted that you're about to get a glut of great new content. Over the last couple of days, the Federation has been at the TCS&D exhibition and show in Peterborough, and through that we ran a, a series of discussions and live podcast recordings with key people from the industry. It was great to reconnect with people. It was great to be back in a room, seeing people face to face and not on Zoom for the first time. And that really came through in some of the conversations we had. So please uh, take some time, listen back to this first conversation, which was featuring myself, Tom Southall, the policy director of the Cold Chain Federation, and Dr. Rob Lamb, the star refrigeration. As well, firstly, I reflected on the last 18 months of the cold chain and talked a bit about, about what we've learned from that period. And then Tom led us into a conversation about the progress the Federation has made in this net zero project and what the key questions are that we face as an industry. So sit back, listen in. Um, there's plenty more content to come, which we'll be releasing over the coming days. Um, as ever, if you like the cold chain podcast, then please subscribe to us on one of your preferred plat- podcast platform. And also, please leave us a review or share the content with, with, with friends. Let's try and make sure we get this podcast out to as many people as possible. Because this is a brilliant platform to get under the skin of what makes some of the key people in our industry tick and talk about some of those key issues. So share it amongst your friends. Let's get this podcast growing. Thanks a lot for your support as ever. And enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Thanks a lot for coming and taking a seat in the, uh, in the, on the Cold Chain Federation stage today at 10. Start of a busy program of discussions throughout the course of today. Um, my name's Shane Brennan, I'm Chief Executive of Cold Chain Federation, and it's quite an important moment for me reflecting on the fact that it was in the summer of 2019 at the last TCS&D show in this hall, somewhere about over there, that we effectively launched Cold Chain Federation as an entity. And um, I don't think I would have predicted then exactly the next 18 months, two years we would have had from, uh, from that moment. But it has been a period of great achievement for everyone across the cold chain. You know, we have kept the nation fed. We have uh, vaccinated the nation because of what we do in the skills and the abilities of cold chain professionals at all levels and in all parts of the industry, both operational and support equipment and uh, advice. So I'm really proud of that and I'm really proud that Culture and Federation were able to play a role in supporting our members through that. You know, the amount of change, regulatory change that we went through, certainly around March and April, I think we had 15 years worth of regulatory change in about 48 hours. And the amount of, of, of adjustments that people had to go through at the same time as having to relocate the entire workforce to home working and uh, deal with the biggest demand peak that out, you know, members were reporting 20% demand above Christmas levels in February, March, which just, uh, the fact that we got it done and we got it done so well is just something I think we should always be immensely proud of. Um, so, and so that's the context for today's discussion. And we're going to briefly break this conversation to this morning, in this first session, into a reflection on that crisis period um, from me. And then I'm going to ask Tom, our policy director, 
to um, talk you to about what that means for the core mission of the Federation. Because when we came together in 2019, the, um, the mission that we set then, and it's still the mission today, is how do we support our industry in its transition to the net zero world that we're going to be in within, if not, one gen if not two generations, if not one generation, then two. So that's really what we need to talk about and how we, sort of, how we come out of the crisis eventually, and we're not out of it yet. How do we start to get back onto that agenda um, and learn the lessons of this period for that? So thank you all. Thank you all that supported us, the Federation, through that time. Thank you to all of you that have, uh, that have joined the Federation. You know, the Federation has added more than 80 members, so we're now 200 strong from when we stood here uh, and launched the Culture and Federation in 2019. Um, we've seen more engagement than we've ever seen before in everything we do, and that's been incredibly valuable to us, and I think it's invaluable to the membership. Thank you for that support. And now I'm going to hand over to Tom to talk about the challenge from here. I'm going to ask Rob to join us on stage, and we're going to have a bit of conversation about the Net Zero Challenge. Thanks, Shane, and uh, good morning, everyone. It's great to, to be here again. Um, as Shane introduced, what I'd like to spend the rest of this session talking about is how all that disruption that Shane's just sort of covered over the last 18 months um, has impacted that wider mission around net zero, um, how it's impacted progress, pace, um, and, and sort of where we go from here, I guess. Um, because if you can think back to kind of before all this crisis started, um, if you can think back that far, whatever that life was like before then, um, sorry, my slides are just skipping on, we were not long had that net zero by 2050 announcement um, that the government had put into legal kind of um, legal infrastructure that we had to hit that target. And the focus was really on that, whether it came to kind of our work with the Cold Chain Federation and businesses work, but government work as well. And obviously over that 18 months, we've been distracted. There's been an awful lot going on, lots of firefighting, lots of um, issues to overcome. But in the background, that work has very much still been going on. Um, and I think what we're going to split this down to is how government policy has changed over the 18 months or progressed, um, and then actually how businesses in the cold chain have, have adapted or are kind of how progress has been over that 18 months. Um, so the, I think the key point is, and delighted to have Rob here as well to, to help us to kind of cover some of those issues. Um, but the key thing when it comes to government policy, I think, is that there hasn't been a slowdown. Um, no matter how much the government's been distracted with helping people through COVID or, or trying to deal with Brexit, um, the, the sort of pledges and the policy and the, the sort of rhetoric on, on climate change and net zero has still continued. Um, obviously, we had in June 2019 the net zero by 2050, but since then we've had the sixth carbon budget, which has um, proposed even more stringent targets of kind of 78% um, reduction in emissions by 2035, um, which again was accepted by government. Um, and lots more talk around um, that progress towards kind of net zero that's been coming out kind of throughout the last sort of 18 months. And when we look at progress, I mean, it's, you might have seen news stories in the last, I think it was in the last six months, the date on this March, um, that we've actually hit halfway towards those emissions, um, which, you know, is a, is a kind of good milestone. Um, but there's lots of reason to suggest that, you know, we can't rest on our laurels and there's a, an awful lot of work left to do. And actually that pressure on, on business and industry and, and transport particularly is going to increase. And I thought this graph was quite interesting. When you, you look at the, um, the different areas and progress, and you can see why we've hit 50% um, emissions reductions because of the drop-off in 2020 of, of sort of surface transport um, and aviation as well, as well as other sectors. But the long-term trend is that energy supply has been switched over, coal power stations have been switching off. Pretty much all of our progress has been based on, on that kind of fact. 
And actually, if you look at manufacturing, if you look at um, buildings, you look at FGAS, you look at transport, there hasn't been that much progress. And I think that's why we can expect increasingly kind of pressure from government and, and new sort of targets. And we've seen things like the transport decarbonisation strategy, hydrogen strategy, other policies that we'll go through in a second um, coming out over the last sort of six months and, and year. And then, of course, coming out of COVID, there was a talk that which you don't really hear so much anymore about a kind of green recovery. Um, I think really early, kind of six months, a year into the pandemic, um, all that talk was of green recovery, recovery. How can we rebuild infrastructure and, and society with, with that idea of kind of net zero and climate change? Don't hear that so much anymore, from, certainly from the, the kind of Westminster. Um, and there's certain, you know, how would, did we lose that impetus? Did it never really materialise? But there's still a lot of talk around that in Scotland. And we also had the COP26 um, conference delayed from last year, going ahead, obviously, in November this year. And I think that's provided that kind of long-term focus for the UK government um, around um, continuing to focus efforts on climate change and, and obviously all of that pressure to, to keep up momentum. So that's sort of one side of it, the government side. The other side is, of course, how have, how have industry, how have cold chain businesses' attitudes towards net zero changed um, in that time? Um, and I think that's a, a good point, hopefully, to bring in... Um, Dr. Rob Lamb from, from Star Refrigeration. Um, and Rob, obviously, in your work, um, helping businesses to reduce their energy usage, relook at their refrigeration systems, um, and get ahead with this kind of policy. Really interested in your thoughts on how you've seen business, business attitudes change over the last 18 months. Has there been a slowdown? Have they been distracted? Or has, is the message around we've got to keep reducing energy use, looking at our emissions? Has that continued through that period? I, I think... Um there's obviously been some major distractions for, for everybody over that period of time, but uh, the businesses that, that um, are looking into the future and uh, have uh, had that policy in place um, prior to, to COVID and, uh, and to Brexit uh, have continued with that. You know, it's been quite refreshing to see that the, the, the businesses have re retained that focus and, and pushing it through. It's, it's by far uh, a long way from being perfect and you know, the, the key thing is that uh, as an industry, we need to take responsibility at an individual level within businesses to, 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 to drive that through. Um, but yeah, more, particularly new build facilities and, and then people looking to, to do retrofit works, that they are asking, well, how can we, how can we do this? Um, the key thing to start with and to understand is, well, what, what does it look like already? Is it good, bad or indifferent? And, 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 and trying to help people understand where they are on that journey. Um, and so that, uh, you know, are they in a good place already or, or have they got some areas where they really do need to address and some low-hanging fruit to work to? But, uh, no, the, the conversations are there um, and are, are taking place. Um, but it, realistically, what does it actually mean? Because what does it mean to be at net zero? Where, where I am today, where, does it, where do I need to be? You know, that's one of the key things I think we really do need to work on as we, as we progress over the next 20, 20 to 30 years towards 2050. What is it that that timeline needs to look at? You know, within our industry, we've had a very clear timeline set for FGAS reduction, for example, and, it's, and, and we know where we need to be. And that's been a challenge, but we're working our way through it. But I think from a, from a, a carbon um, emissions reduction, uh, then that's really where we need to, to really be focusing in those years to come and, and working towards that. So people have got clarity. Yeah. And I think... I think we're not, um, I think it's really surprising, you know, hopefully people in the room know, but in six weeks' time, the world comes together in Glasgow to talk for the latest climate change conference. You know, the Paris conference from 2015 is the, is the, is the global sort of, the, the standard we set for what global climate change policies should be. There hasn't been as much, you know, you would have thought there would have been way more focus 
on everything to do with this issue going into that than there, than mm -hmm. there currently is. And I, it makes me worry, and I don't want to be too negative, it makes me worried about how little real leadership we're seeing around the issue from, from, from government. And you've, you know, there's a look, there's, it, it's all very tactical, the way the conversation is going at the moment. And I think, unfortunately, number 10, leaders have gone, actually the, the UK, and this is, a, this is a good thing, the UK is probably the best developed nation. If you, take, if you take a league table of how global economies are faring on climate change, the UK is in a really good place. But because we switched off our coal, yeah. that's it. That's why, that's why we're in a really good place. Everything else is not particularly good compared to anybody else, and nor is that then what does good look like. And so I guess they're going into that conference saying, well, we're the best, so therefore everyone else needs to catch up with us. But that is so the wrong frame of mind mm. for a 2050 net zero. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, you know, we'll, we can't make number 10 change. You know, I'd, I'd love to say we had the opportunity to ring them up and, and, t and tell them what to do, and we don't in that way. We have to think about how as an industry we're going to embrace these things, how our customers, who have also made the sorts of commitments the government have made, you know, across the retail space, across others, have said, we're going to achieve these things. You know, the, the global truck manufacturers have said they're going to, be net, they're going to have zero carbon HGVs by 2040. Okay, what does that actually mean for us? How are we going to change what we do based in order to actually basically to be ready for that, because assuming it will happen, because otherwise you go down the other cynical route and say, well, it's not going to happen, so... We'll just wait and wait until you tell us. And all of this has led to the formation of our Net Zero project, which hopefully lots of you are aware of that we launched sort of last year, which is kind of our commitment to, to members and the industry to try and lead um, everybody through this challenge and to, to really drill down into some of those issues. Um, and we've split that into sort of five parts, which I won't go through all of them. Um, but the key ones, I think, were uh, earlier this year when we launched a, a piece on defining a Net Zero cold chain um, and then kind of in the future, this month and beyond, we're going to be looking specifically at vehicles and cold stores. Um, but when it comes to actually defining a net zero cold chain, I think that's one of the big challenges we face, and Rob touched on it, is exactly what, what is a, you know, we know we're not going to be emission free, we're always going to use energy. Um, what is that expectation? What is our footprint now? Um, and what, what will it need to be? How will it change? Um, and that's, that's what this document, if you haven't seen it, sets out, but it, it principally splits into two areas the need to calculate those holistic emissions from the, the sort of whole cold chain. And we're proud to support a, a number of kind of academic studies and, and other studies who are, have been awarded a lot of funding recently to look exactly at that. Um, but also supporting businesses and supporting our members to assess their own emissions. And Shane, you touched on the, the, the fact that within certain elements of the cold chain, you know, there's, a, there's lots of pledges going out there. And actually, if you look kind of in wider UK business, you can't really look at an environmental section of a, a newspaper without seeing another company that's come out with a, a certain target by a certain date for a certain part of their operation. And it, I guess it's starting to get a little bit confusing in that sense. But trying to, a big role for us is to try and get a handle of exactly kind of how our members are, are approaching their own emissions in terms of assessing them and, and planning for the future. Um, and again, Rob, that would be an, an interesting point to, to hear from you. I know that's something you've been working on with your customers. Um, how do you think we are in terms of within the cold chain for actually understanding our emissions um, knowing what they are, measuring them, and kind of planning, I guess, having our own kind of net zero strategy when we look at individual businesses within the cold chain who you would support? I think it varies um, considerably. You know, that there are companies that are very focused on it. Um, those that have a, a, an environmental and a carbon reduction target are, are more focused than others. Um, but it's a, I mean, it's a very simple metric. 
Um, and obviously, as, as your members well know, they, they submit their energy data, they submit their volumes, and, and there's, a, there's a metric associated with that that they can look at. And that will give you a, an idea of where you sit against various benchmarks, um, benchmarks from studies that have been across Europe and, and, and the wider world as well. Uh, and that's really the starting point. If you, if you don't know that, if you don't know where you sit at this moment in time, how do you know where you need to go? And that's very simple to do. Any, any operator can do that. They just they need two pieces of data, what their energy usage is and how big their facility is. And from that, you know where the starting point is, what the gap is, and that's the most important thing. What's the gap between what, where you are now and where you need to head towards? And um, measuring that is, is, is going to be key. I think we, the, the good, one of the good positives about the industry here in terms of the facilities is that it's, it's very much electrically driven. So therefore, if, if we can get to renewables within that electric side of it, there's a big opportunity there for carbon reduction because, of course, you're not going to be using something uh, fossil fuels in any way, shape, or form. Um, if well, I want to sort of... Can, can I ask on that? Because um, this is one of the things that I'm sort of trying to get my head around. I, and I was talking to um, the Director General for um, Net Zero in the Department for Business uh, a couple of weeks ago. Sorry, name drop, but yeah. we were talking to a, to, to a senior official, basically, and I was talking to him about the coal chain challenge and how we're trying to take leadership role and that kind of stuff. And one of the things he said to me, which was important, and I thought it would be important, it was if we, de if we uh, decarbonize the grid, does it matter whether there's more coal chain draw on that grid or not? Because we're electric, like you say. So is that the solution? Is it just electrify the grid and then we pay, we pay, we'll pay for the energy that we take from that grid? It might be more than we pay now, but we'll, it will be green. Is that, is that enough? One of the key questions is, do we have enough renewable energy to drive the grids when it looks like that? You know, everybody's moving to electrically driven vehicles. We can see them scattered around here at this moment in time. The draw on that renewable, nobody really knows what that's going to be as we move out into the future. So that's going to be a real challenge as we, as we move in that direction. If I put another slight positive spin on this as well, is that as an industry, we took a lot of energy away in our stores. If we could capture that energy, we could actually then to help support, which I think is the bigger issue that's coming down the line, which is the decarbonizing of our heating. Because we still burn gas um, at a humongous rate in this country. It's still relatively cheap, three, of, three pence a kilowatt hour versus electrical rates I've got at home at the moment is like 18 pence a kilowatt hour for my electricity. If we as an industry could capture some of that and we could get our infrastructure in place, that needs collaboration with government, that needs building projects to be done, we can actually then support decarbonising of some of that. Because at the moment, a, a coal store facility that does, doesn't really need a lot of, of heating, it has some, but if, you, if you're providing waste heat to some bigger processes, food production, for example, then there's a, there's a potential benefit that we can give over and above. The industry still needs to tackle its, the big sort of elephant in the room, which is trucks. So that's, that, that to me, you know, we, we can do the bit in the electricity in terms of the stores, but then we've still got to deal with the projects of the trucks. So that's where the bigger issue comes. But I think you're right. Let's get to that, that win, winning point. But there still needs to be the drive to drive down energy within facilities because we don't know how much energy we're going to draw. We don't know what the cost of that energy is going to be either moving forwards and how, that fe how that's going to affect the business. But in that context, one thing to bear in mind, and one of the things about it, it's very hard. It's very hard. To, you cannot follow the transition map, the innovation map, and the legislation map. Those two things are in line with each other. So the acceleration through the innovation that has to happen to meet the legal table is so, so, so advanced. So you have to start thinking about what does the world look like in a net zero world in 2050, assuming we don't have knock down all our coal stores and build new ones that don't exist yet, that don't use electricity or whatever. The, 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 the question then is, in that world where the grid is, is completely renewable but it's finite, people will be fighting over that energy. 
and it'll be about who, who, who's, who's the priority for the, for the grid energy. You see some of that in California already. You know, who's more important to draw the energy? And yes, we've got a good case to make in the cold chain, but you have to sort of think about those, thinking in those terms about, you know, so, so resilience of your own operations, mm. generating your own probably is just hard-headed business sense. But you've, the last 18 months have taught us that actually when the, the focus has come back onto what we do, because the, th the things that we need to survive globally is food. It's, it's, it's the common denominator. Without it, we're all shot. You know, unless somebody develops something that we don't need food anymore, it's always going to be there. And so, therefore, it is a, it's a key part of, of the world economy. And the great thing, the, one of the positives to come out of the last 18 months is that the light has been shone upon us and the, and the need for us. It's been the vaccine, which we've already pointed out earlier, Shane, in terms of the vaccine, but also the, the cold chain. We've, we've got the light on us at the moment, and we need to make the, the best of that particular opportunity. I think in terms of, of kind of energy, the, the government position is fairly clear that actually there's a, there's a real drive to energy efficiency and to use energy better. And I think we're already seeing that within policies specifically affecting cold stores. If you think of obviously the climate change agreement, which we've ran um, for many years for cold stores to talk drive efficiency, this year we learned, was it last year? I can't quite remember. Um, that's in, in the targets are getting much harder. Um, Re-looking at that baseline, bringing that forward to 2018, new targets installed, a clear indicator that we need to be more efficient. Um, also things coming out in the industrial decarbonisation strategy around reusing heat and things like that. Um, but I think the other big proposal this year that I know you looked at with me, Rob, was the proposal for performance ratings in industrial buildings. So earlier this year, for, for those who had, didn't see it, there's a, a consultation launched for um, all commercial and industrial buildings to actually have energy ratings. So not, not an EPC, a similar system where you would have a five-star rating. Um, you would have to disclose your energy, so that would be publicly available. Um, you'll receive a star rating compare it when you're compared against other cold stores which again would be publicly disclosed um, and there would be things in there to make you kind of achieve things year on year else you might get financial penalties and other things so I think that was a real indication that things are going to ramp up in terms of putting a bit more openness on how we, how we report energy usage certainly and actually real specific measures there to, to actually drive performance perhaps way beyond what we've seen in the climate change agreement um, and yeah and I know you looked at that as well Rob I think that's quite a game changer when it comes to sort of energy management and coal stores. Potentially, if it comes in, it's still still a proposal at this stage, but it looks quite likely like it will go ahead. Yeah, I mean, and we've seen some behavioural change in, in Australia where they've had something very similar already running for a number of years. And uh, when when we look at uh, design of buildings, the focus is very much at this moment in time on on the design and how it's constructed and, and meeting certain targets. But we we don't really look at how it then operates, and, and certainly the data that we've been collecting for site operations there's a huge difference for very similar buildings in the amount of energy that they, they will take. Some of them could be 30, 40, even double the amount of energy of another building of a similar size. Now, some of that is operational, but some of that is, is the fact that the, the facility doesn't run as efficiently as it, as, it, as it should do. Bringing these sort of metrics in and getting that annual review will, will I think, uh, drive people to, to look at how they operate the store, not just how they, they, they purchase it at day one, but the operation. You know, you've know, got to remember the operation of a, of a store, the operating cost is 70 to 80% of the overall cost of that facility over 20 to 25 years. So it, it is important. One of the things that I'm very keen to see what happens in the years to come is that will actually um, the end client dictate what facilities need to meet in terms of an energy target. Now, I know the Australian government have done that. They, they, they've, they've sort of put a cut-off point in terms of buildings that they're, they're um, 
their employees can use for their day-to-day -day business, it has to meet a minimum requirement. Will you get end, up end users specifying with, to our industry, you know, you need to be a, a C or a, a three grade or above in order to, in order to store my product? It, it, there may be for, forward in that direction. Forced, forced obsolescence of inefficient buildings is part of net zero. Mm. And start thinking about that in the context, not, not post-2050, running into 2050. So we're looking at 2035, 2040, yeah. forced obsolescence of industrial buildings. Yeah. That's and a that pretty big deal. I mean, Rob said there that some cold stores are maybe two, three, maybe more times more efficient than others. And within potentially two or three years, they're going to be directly comparable to one another openly on a directory. I mean, that could shake up, shake up the industry quite a lot. Yeah, the, the, and I know, you know, in a, in a tight margin, low cost, highly competitive marketplace, which we've is our culture as an industry. The idea of that level of transparency is anathema, but probably the single biggest regulatory threat, or the biggest threat, the regulatory opportunity, regulatory change, that is just a fact of life over whatever over a 10-year time frame or a 15-year time frame, is that that is no longer going to be a competitive secret. What energy your building uses is going to be open to anybody to know. Every one of your competitors or your customers, it's just going to be known. It's going to be, it's, going to, it's the only way, you, the only way you achieve the sorts of things that net zero actually entails. Mm. So understanding that and getting into that mind frame early is probably a, a good thing. I think for an operator to know whether they're good, bad or indifferent is, is important as well. You know, because it will drive change because you might be quite happily sitting along looking at your energy bill. It's not changing year to year and thinking, well, I'm doing okay. It's pretty, pretty flat. But if you're using 50% more than the guy down the road that's, that's got the same size store, you probably want to know about it because you'd want to try and drive that to, to give yourself the benefit. Which kind of leads on to the, the sort of last point, I guess, on funding transition. And I think that's, that's kind of key for us is that we've had all this policy coming through from government. We know we need to change um, and big changes are required, as we've just discussed. But how actually will that be funded? Um, and I'm going to cover more of this in the next session when we look at vehicles. But I guess just to finish off, Rob, in terms of the funding challenge, um, how great is that when you, you've obviously got lots of solutions you can offer customers to improve energy efficiency and, and things like that but they come at a cost how much is that challenge sort of holding back progress and how much could support possibly from government whether it's direct funding or, or maybe other means actually bridge that gap and help us to speed up that transition yeah, some, some degree of incentivizing uh, efficiency of equipment and I think linking that in with the, the measurement of, of operation as well. It's all right to invest in something that on a, in a catalogue looks very efficient, but it's actually, if you could see and, and measure that and, and get some sort of reward for that in terms of that, in, that investment, that would be good. Um, it's not, the, not there at this moment in time in terms of, of a government incentive to do that. So uh, that, would, that would certainly help to move things along. And the, I think it's long, longer-term thinking as well. Too many energy projects, for example, get stopped because it's not a two-year payback or it's not 18 months or it's three years. It's, it, to be fair, these, those, those type of installations, those type of projects very rarely, if ever, pay back. They're not like LEDs. You know, it's not the same sort of payback period that you get with an, an LED. It needs that longer um, thinking. And, and if there is something that can be done to, to improve that and to make it more... Um, affordable and, and something that businesses can take up, then that will obviously move that forward quicker. Is that a concern for you, Shane, that actually, you know, through this climate change agreement, we know that LEDs have become common, lots of these kind of easy wins have, have happened, but we need to make lots more progress? I'd say, say two things on it. One is that is obviously the number one lobbying objective of the Coal Chain Federation. Now, we understand, and you know, you know, in a world where we are talking and preaching the, world, the values of net zero, we have to basically make the case for support to make that happen because it is just straightforwardly 
bad for business in the short term to absorb all this additional cost that you just can't justify in terms of your return. So, you know, the, the, that, that is a, a reality. We need to basically focus in on that problem and talk to government about how they help that problem. But I'm not going to underestimate how hard it is to make that case. Because the government is of a mind frame that they're trying to, they're trying to hold the line against buying incentives. Yeah. That, that, that they, they feel like they've been burned on that in the past. Things like scrappage schemes for, for, for commercial vehicles. They feel like that, 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 that ran out of control and started to become abused or didn't work in the way it was supposed to in the market. So they, they're pretty sad set on that. They would also say, I mean, Rishi Sunak would say, not that I ever speak to him, but I'd love to, um, we've given you 125% super deduction on capital allowances for everything. So we're giving you a lot of money back to spend money on equipment and stuff. You, it's up to, we can't, that, that, that's across the board. And we're leaving you as businesses to decide what's the best thing to invest in. So we have to, we will continue to make that case because it's the right story to tell out there to our industry and to the government. But we have to accept that the reality is it's not probably going to happen in the next 12 24 months, and those people are making decisions today about what they're going to buy, they need to think about the other factors and not just, you know, how do I get some money to, to, to make it cheaper for me mm. to do that. They've got to sort of look at the payback, the long term. Think about the 25, 20 year view rather than just the five year view, which is really hard to do, I know. But it's easier for buildings than it is for vehicles, which we're going to talk about in a moment. Thanks, Shane, and um, thanks, Rob. And, and just to finish off, quick plug for the next session where we're going to look in more detail at, at transport refrigeration. Um, really in the context of our plan that we spent sort of 18 months, two years maybe, um, kind of in production, um, the journey to emission-free temperature-controlled refrigeration on road vehicles. So there you go. I hope you agree that was a fascinating conversation that kicked off our live programme at TSD. So this is our first episode. Listen out for more coming in coming days. The next edition is going to be a discussion that we had um, with leading transport refrigeration suppliers, uh, equipment rental companies, and operators about the future of transport refrigeration. And then follow after that, we've got conversations with uh, Tim Moran and Andrew Lawrence from the Culture Federation Board about the state of the industry. And then in the afternoon, we also just spoke to Mark Burrell, the new managing director of Moran Logistics, and with Michael Kane, the strategy director at Marshall Fleet Services, all of which, all of the conversations, really, really insightful stuff. So please tune in, please subscribe, make sure you don't miss out on this content as it gets released over the next two or three weeks. In the meantime, thanks a lot for listening to the Cold Chain Podcast and have a great week.